It's customary that before the E3 opens its door to the public, the major companies hold press conferences. And while these technically happen outside of what the E3 really is, the content of those press conferences is usually the meat of the event. That's what we wait for, the announcements, the excitement of the reveals and distinct peaks and such. These press events have taken place in a similar fashion ever since the first E3 back in 1995, which was a legendary event, especially because of a couple of surprise announcements, most notably the one that occurred at the Sony press conference. Now, it might not seem as much, but this brief announcement, it's probably one of the most charged, most interesting ones in the history of the E3, and maybe in the history of gaming, or at the very least, the business side of gaming. The whole Sony presentation is much longer, of course, but back then, Sony had yet to release the original PlayStation outside of Japan, so the keynote was all about hyping the PlayStation. The brief announcement was made by Steve Race, the then president of Sony Computer Entertainment of America. And as you listened, right after the announcement, the audience cheered ecstatically. In this episode, we'll try to explain why 299 was such an exciting announcement. I'm Seiji, and this is Bonus Bonus Barrel, episode 4. first part of the episode I'm going to be mentioning some stats and be referring to some charts. If you're interested in in looking at this there is a companion presentation to go along with the nonsense I'm about to tell you. The link should be in the description. Now this is totally optional so you don't need to do it but it's kind of cool. Well if you like stats and charts. Uh, Same as last time I'll be playing this sound Anytime I change slides. That being said, let's start. First things first, what is 299? Well, that was clear from the actual conference. Now let me get to the best news of all aggressive Tyson that brings this only true next year system. Some of you uh, might actually want to know what that price is. Uh, and uh, since it's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, uh, I'm going to ask Sony Computer Entertainment President of America, Steve Ray, to join me for a brief presentation. Two ninety nine. 
So, to the audience there, it was clear that $299 was the actual price of the PlayStation at launch. Uh, but still, like, what's the big deal? And the main reason is actually quite simple. But before going into that part, I would like to first uh, check some historical data about console prices for the purpose of contextualization. This is going to give us a better sensibility of what was seen as expensive and, and will help us see like a fuller, bigger picture. Now, the launch prices for consoles vary quite a lot. I'm going back to 1972 with the Magnavox Odyssey, all the way to 2017, to last year, to a Nintendo Switch. So for the Magnavox Odyssey released in 1972, the release price was $99. And for reference, I'm going to put some Pong consoles, and they were released at around the price of $100, give or take. $130 was a price that I saw of the, the Sears Telestar. But I'm using like a lower end price, which, which is the logic that I apply for most of these uh, consoles, which is $89.98. This was like a lower end price that I saw in 1975. So at that point in the 70s, before the Atari 2600 is released, which is arguably like the first successful console, more like in the type of consoles that we know and are familiar with nowadays, the price was around $100, give or take. But the Atari 2600 in 1977 was released at double that, which is $199. That was the launch price. Now the the price of the 2600 as well as most consoles usually changes after it has been introduced in the market. Then in 1980, the Mattel Intellivision was released for 299 which is, again, much more expensive. This is 1980, before the crash. Also before the crash, we have the ColecoVision in 1982, which was released for 175 then the Atari 5200 was released in 1982 also for 269 and then the crash happened. And at this point, a lot of these consoles, especially the games, got suddenly very, very cheap. I'd like an Atari 2600 system, please. Tell me, you're buying it because it plays hundreds of fun and challenging games, right? Uh, no. Oh, then it's because of its incredibly low price? Uh, not really. Well, it must be because its new and exciting games are now priced lower than ever. Uh-uh. Then why are you buying the Atari 2600? You see this cute little girl over here? Yes. She's relentless. The Atari 2600 video game system and its new exciting games at a new low price. But then the Nintendo Entertainment System is introduced in 1995 at the price of $199. So we're back at like that kind of price from the Atari 2600. The Sega Master System was released the next year for the same price, $199. And we can see now this trend. And if, you, if you're looking at the numbers, you see that in 1989, both the TurboGrafx-16 and Sega Genesis are released for for a similar price, $199 for the TurboGrafx and then $189 for the Sega Genesis. And then something very different happens. In 1991, SNK's Neo Geo is released for the exorbitant price of $649. Now, this is a very special case because the Neo Geo was not supposed to be 
a product for the end consumer. Initially, especially in Japan, it was supposed to be bought by like companies like hotels that could, you know, put these in in the rooms and stuff, which, which was a common practice in Japan. There are special editions of the of the Famicom that are just that. But anyway, the Neo Geo was had some success at, even at that price, and then. The, the Super Nintendo in 1991 is released at the 199 mark. And then the other super expensive console is the, the 3DO in 1993. This is the highest price a console has been sold, which is 699 Now, it could be argued that there are other consoles that had a higher retail price. But for the purpose of this exercise, I'm, I'm taking just like the base price available. Then in 1993, we have the Atari Jaguar at 249 and now I want to go back a little bit because if we exclude the 3DO and the Neo Geo, which are two exceptions, we're seeing a really slow increase in price that hasn't really changed from the release of the Super Nintendo. And the Atari Jaguar is the first console in the fifth generation, and it goes up to 249 and it sort of justified these were much more complex machines. The development of 3D graphics, for better or for worse, um, implies like a big jump in hardware, and and these prices had to be you know adjusted. So a price of 249 isn't as high, but it's definitely higher than what we've been seeing for the last like major consoles. Then we have the PlayStation 1995, of course, which is now we know. 299. You have there in Sega Saturn 1995 with 399. And then the Nintendo 64 and 1996 at a price of 199 And this sort of happened because both the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn, they reduced their price in the summer of 96 before the Nintendo 64 got released. So now we have, you know, the Nintendo 64 having to have this low price in order to be competitive with the consoles that were already there. And then in 1999, the Dreamcast is released at, at the price of 199 PlayStation 2 in 2000, 299. The GameCube in 2001 at 199, which is going to be the last time this price is used. Then the Xbox in 2001 at 299. Xbox 360 in 2005, 299. The Wii in 2006, 249. PlayStation 3 in 2006 with 499, which is another one of those exceptions. The Wii U, 2012, 299. PlayStation 4. 2013, 3.99, Xbox One, 2013, 4.99. In 2016, we have the PlayStation 4 Pro that went out for 3.99. And finally, the Nintendo Switch 2017 for 2.99. That is the whole list. And for the ones that are following this podcast with the companion presentation, there's a chart in here. And the chart, we can clearly see a slow trend upwards with two big exceptions with the Neo Geo and the the 3DO. But what we can see is that it starts low and then it slowly goes up as years go by. But one thing that we haven't mentioned is inflation. The purchasing power of a currency changes over time when inflation happens. And in this case, this is all done in, in American currency. So that has been the case in the US. So adjusted for inflation, we have very different prices because now all of a sudden the Magnavox Odyssey, for example, that was a very cheap console for $100, now all of a sudden it's on the expensive end. It 
it sort of makes sense because in the 1970s, the kind of technology that they were selling for the time was very advanced. When we adjust for inflation, it gives us a, a really good idea of the, the reality of what it means you know, to spend a certain amount of money in those times. I'm going to go through these uh, very quickly, and I'm going to mention the decimal points, just the prices. The Magnavox Odyssey, which was previously $99, goes up to 570 The Pong consoles, from 89.98 to 416 Now, something that very interesting that happens is that the price, well, when you just see the price of $99 in 1972, it seems kind of reasonable, but then you see that it's very, very expensive. And you can really see, you know, what was the price of technology in those days. And this one is very interesting. The Atari 2600 from 199 goes to 790, which is super expensive. The Intellivision from 299 to 873. The ColecoVision from 175 to 436. The Atari 5200 from 269 to 671. And this is pre-crash prices, right? Then we have the NES, $199 to $445. The Master System, $199 to $437. Tuber Graphics, $199 to $386. The Genesis, $189 to $367. And this one's kind of funny. Uh, the Neo Geo, which was already kind of expensive at $649, goes up to $1,147. The Super Nintendo 199 to 351, the 3DO 699 to 1165, and I want to pause here a little bit because something that is interesting is that is that the, the prices to this point are sort of reflecting the prices that we see nowadays at retail pricing. For example, again the Super Nintendo 199 when we adjust for inflation is 351, which seems pretty reasonable. When we go to the Atari Jaguar in 1993, with a price of 249, we end up with 440, which all of a sudden doesn't seem like that high of a jump when we compare to the 351 from the Super Nintendo. Now the PlayStation, it's 299, goes to 472. The Saturn, and this is gonna be interesting later, uh, 399 to 630. The Nintendo 64, 199 to 305. Dreamcast 199 to 287. As we get closer to the present, the inflation doesn't have that big of a of an effect. The PlayStation 2 299 to 418. The GameCube 199 to 270. The Xbox from 299 to 406. Xbox 360 of 299 to 368. The Wii. 249 to 297, the PlayStation 3, 499 to 596, the Wii U, 299 to 313, PlayStation 4, 399 for 12, the Xbox One from 499 to 515, and the PlayStation 4 Pro and Nintendo Switch both keep their 399 and 299 price tags intact. Now with, with these adjustments, when we compare them side by side, what we previously saw is that the prices of, of consoles were going up slowly but steadily up. But now 
with the adjustment for inflation, we sort of see the opposite. You know, you have to sort of ignore the some of the exceptions in here, like the Neo Geo and the, and the, and the 3D. Now we see that all their consoles, when adjusted for inflation, they were much more expensive than today's video game consoles. But for the purpose of this episode, something that we need to check maybe is the, the conditions after the fourth generation is that the standard price of 199 needed to go up. So the market would be very sensitive to those increases in, in the pricings. So having a very competitive price meant a much bigger deal than what it might seem at first glance. generation console wars is the stuff of legends. Entire books have been written about it, like Blake J. Harris's Console Wars, which I completely recommend. But the important thing to know, for our purposes anyway, is that Nintendo consolidated itself as the worldwide market leader in the third generation, but Nintendo was always seen as arrogant and difficult to work with, which eventually opened the door for a series of events that led to the existence of the PlayStation but I'm not going to go into much detail onto that. And then during the fourth generation, Sega, when all out on Nintendo and against all odds, was able to sort of beat them and actually became the market leader for a while. But Sega ended up in a sort of a bad position and maybe clung to the Genesis for too long and released at the very least two questionable add-ons. Another thing worth mentioning for contextualization is that the Mega Drive, as the Genesis is known outside of North America, was not successful in Japan and this actually caused some tension between Sega of Japan and Sega of America. And I'll come back to that later. But what's important is that Sega of Japan couldn't wait to move on to the next generation while Sega of America was still heavily supporting the Genesis. In fact, Sega of Japan released its next generation console the day after Sega of America released the 32X on November 22nd, 1994. The Saturn release date, though, was part of a race to get to the Japanese market first. Both uh, Sega and Sony decided to rush into the fifth generation of consoles in 1994 because they had to, because it meant a competitive advantage over the market leader, Nintendo. And Nintendo was in no rush to launch the Nintendo 64 then known only as a Project Reality. And it would ultimately be launched much later in the summer of 96 in Japan and in September of the same year in North America, almost two years after the original Japanese release of both Sega Saturn and Sony's PlayStation. And so, Sega and Sony race into the Japanese market, with the Saturn beating the PlayStation by only 11 days. By the end of 1994, 
Sega had an edge over Sony and were now preparing their Western offensives. Actually, in Japan, the Saturn is not seen as a commercial failure the same way the Saturn is seen here in North America. Anyway, in March of the next year, in 1995, Sega announces the release date for the Saturn to be Saturday, September 2nd of 1995. They call it Saturn Day. And then, just about 15 minutes before Sony's keynote at E3, Tom Kalinske, CEO of Sega America, made a peculiar announcement. I think when Yogi said fork in the road, he meant opportunity. When he sees opportunity, he takes it. So do we. We're taking all the opportunities we can to make this business soar. And since I began my remarks with an announcement, I may as well finish with another. We started our rollout of Sega Saturn yesterday. We were at retail today at 1800 Toys R Us, software, etc., and electronic boutique stores around the U.S. and Canada. Our retail price is between $399 and $449. We have 10 software titles at retail in the next few days, 20 by August. Our total rollout will take the summer to complete. But we're starting today in store and starting today on primetime TV with these commercials. Sega Saturn is not only here now, it's out there. Thanks. It's been an honor. It was a disaster. Retailers were furious. Gamers were confused. And more importantly, it did nothing to Sony. In fact, it sort of ended up favoring them. But I must say that listening to Kalinsky trying to make the best out of the precarious situation Sega of Japan had put him in is quite admirable. But again, why did Sega rush like this? And the easy answer is because Sega of Japan mandated it. The American and Japanese divisions of Sega infamously had a mutually jealous relationship Sega of Japan was jealous of Sega of America's success with their version of the Mega Drive and Sega of America resented the lack of recognition and support and even suspected that Sega of Japan was somehow trying to sabotage them to a certain extent. Sega expected Sony to release in the fall of 95 with a price of $399 based on its Japanese pricing which is much closer to $399. Sega did accomplish its objective to beat Sony to the North American market, but Sony ultimately destroyed the Saturn with one short speech. Not much more was needed to be said in that press conference. At the end of the fifth generation, Sony would become the unquestioned leader in worldwide gaming. To do so, they had to take down two giants that day, they took one of them down. And that is why people were cheering. it for this episode of bonus bonus barrel i gotta be honest uh 
This episode was initially going to be about something that was tangentially related to the story that I ended up talking about, and it was going to be more about you know the, the prices and and how games in the old days were actually like more expensive and such. And I do have that data there, but but I couldn't make it work, and it was taking too much time. So yeah, this episode was very really complicated to do, and there's a lot of stuff that I could have said, and I couldn't find like a way to put it into the narrative. Um, the next episode is gonna be something. Uh, much simpler in nature and hopefully won't be you know, late as this one it, but anyway uh, that, that's it and uh, thank you for listening